Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. This is our first episode about the upcoming Australian federal election, and today I'm talking about the state of Australian polling with my guest, Peter Lewis. Peter is the director of Essential, who put out the fortnightly Guardian Essential poll, which is one of the main polls that we're going to be analysing in this election campaign. Hello, Peter. Hi, Ben. Australian polling suffered a bit of a blow in 2019 when pretty much every pollster predicted a narrow Labor victory, although I think the conventional wisdom expected a bit more of a Labor victory, but a narrow Labor victory was what most pollsters predicted. I want to challenge the history of that before we dig in. So as you know, Ben, and most of your listeners would know, we work with an N equals 1,000 of a 3% margin of error. The idea the polls got it wrong, I don't think stands scrutiny, but I do think that the polls were misinterpreted and gave a false lodestar to everyone about what was going on. And particularly, um, I think the fact they'd been so stable for so long was part of that. It's not so much about the individual polls. It's the unanimity, I think, of them that that was the thing that particularly made it... um... Well, there's two, I would say it's two things. One is you're right. right. I think expectations were set earlier in the year when, um, or even the year before, when Labor was leading by a lot more. You know, when Morrison took over from Turnbull, there wasn't a sense that this was a decision they'd made to improve their polling position, and his polls looked pretty bad. Uh, so that was part of it that the the gap had been bigger. And I don't think people adjusted their expectations as things got narrower. There was no dramatic, explosive change. Uh, it was just a sort of it was a the frog in the boiling pot kind of thing, and so people kind of had set their idea of what was going to happen, and nothing, nothing dramatic enough had changed it. That was part of it, and I do also think the polls were very stable, and in the end, pretty much every pollster predicted the same thing. So I think it was those things in particular, and that's one thing we'll get into that in a minute. But I find encouraging about the fact that Essential is not putting out the same numbers as News Poll this time. You know, like they're not completely at odds with each other, but it's encouraging to see a little bit of diversity about what numbers are coming out. Well, noise is healthy, as you know, in stats. And, um, you know, you can go deeper into saying that systems with noise are more resilient than really brittle um, systems. Um, But I think that there were three elements out of the last election that we took away. One was the horse race polling was really counterproductive. The second was that we were hiding the undecided voters. And the third was that it gets harder and harder to build your representative samples, whether you're doing phone polling or online polling. So there was those three challenges. So I'm not saying just because we technically didn't get it wrong that there was nothing to learn from that because, you know, it really did create. And at the time I said, you know, we've got to approach this result with um, humility and curiosity and not try to be defensive about what we do, but really think through how to do it better. And I think we have actually ended up in a better place than we were. So you've listed pretty much all of the re- the, the reasons that I put down as dot points about what I thought um, had happened in 2019. I don't want to spend too much time talking about 2019, but just briefly before we move on, you changed the way that you reported two-party preferred to include an undecided vote which uh, I believe the last one, which I was listening to the Guardian podcast the other day, was 50-45-5 in favour of Labor. Um, so that's a, that's that would end up being, I think, about 53 if you didn't include the undecideds, if you were to convert it to the way that Newspoll would report. I think we do still secretly do the old one, and I think it was 52-9. Um, so the, the thinking on that was just that 
And I think it's a credible story. I think the election broke late last time to Morris, and I think elections can break late. And when you take the undecideds out of your sample, you're effectively hiding a really important group that are up for grabs. And I just I just challenge people to replay the last weeks of the 2019 campaign. Instead of saying, oh, Labor's ahead 52-48, they were saying it's 48-46 with 6% undecided. Would there have been a different narrative? Would the parties have approached it differently? And it would have been a more honest representation of what happened. And it was interesting, Ben, when I was looking at the way the American pollsters were covering the presidentials in 2020, they all leave the undecideds in there as well. So it's not totally novel, but I think particularly in Australia where voting is compulsory, it just gives you a little bit more texture. Now, it also takes away that idea that someone is ahead, which is just rubbish because no one's ahead until voting day. It is merely where people are at any moment. I think the the idea of someone being ahead implies that you could reach a point where the election was actually over. You know, that someone would be so far ahead with so little time that an election is over. And I mean, we do sometimes get elections where by election day, you pretty much know what's happened. But, you know, the I, d- I think that doesn't happen as much as people think. Well, it only happens when government changes, Ben. Basically, governments change in big waves and close elections the incumbents hold on. Right back to World War II, there has not been a close election that an opposition has won, with maybe the exception of Whitlam in 72, but he'd had the big wave in 69 the Don's party election. They picked up 20-odd seats then and then they only won eight. But every other change of government since World War II, it's been 20-plus seats apart. Abbott was 18, I think. The rest were 20-plus. So when governments change, you do see it coming. But if it's tight... I want to talk about that in a sec, but just, just to finish on 2019, that is interesting. And one of the things I find interesting about the way you've used undecided voters is we've now got this pollster resolve, which is doing reporting for the people who used to be called Fairfax. And um, they they actually don't include an undecided option because they give people a ballot paper and you can't include an undecided option. Whereas they have also, on the other point of the two-party preferred, they've gone for an approach that feels, it's not the same, but it has a little bit of commonality with what you guys did for much of the term, which is you would report two-party preferred figures in bulk every few months, you know, every fortnight's number, but you wouldn't report them all um, as they came out. They don't actually report two-party preferred figures, but it's interesting in both cases that you get people coming up with their own calculations of what resolves 2PP is. And in your case, we we do come up with an estimate of like an equivalent 2PP, right? Because you kind of need it to be able to compare the different pollsters. But I quite like including the undecided vote in it, and I think it makes sense to do. So what I'd say about Resolve, I think, and we'll, we'll, we won't know till Election Day, but I think the, the forcing people to make a call when they're undecided um, outside ballot day is increasing the number going to independents and other parties, because I think when you're not sure and you're forced, you're going to go to neutral territory. So I think their independent number has been much higher than the other polls, and I, I, I suspect that's why. So what you guys have done since 2019, you've done the, uh, you've changed the way you report 2PP, both how the number is reported, but also when you report it. Um, although you are now reporting uh, the 2PP as soon as it comes out, because we're at this point in the campaign, which I think makes sense. Um, and you've you're also yeah you've done some things with the undecided vote. Uh, do you 
have you noticed much and talk about yourself or also if you're aware of other pollsters to the underlying formula of how you are reaching people? Because you mentioned the difficulty of finding a representative sample and the inquiry by AMSRO into the last election did did bring up the issue of um, are we not capturing enough voters, particularly low education voters? Are they being missed? Yeah, we've had education now in our waiting. There is a whole industry in um, broking panels to get um, representative samples. So there are independent companies that don't actually control the panels, but then go and buy panels. There's this whole data industry that I don't even pretend to know how it works, but we've got ABS waiting, we've got um, geography, gender, income, now education, um, and they all fit within our um, the, the the samples that we fill. I just think that it's almost like a it's a difficult market, but a maturing market. I I think that the phone numbers get harder and harder every every year, um, and then you end up with a lot of people running robo polls, which are really unreliable. So there's a whole bunch of different difficulties in just finding the sample. But you know, that's just the way that you know the fragmentation of all forms of communications has sort of left us with. So we'll um we'll see how well the pollsters do when you know, when we get to the end of May and the results have all come in. Um, I would say that we did just have a South Australian election and the polling we did have there performed really well. So that's the case. But what's your take on the current situation for the government, for Labor? Um, like you talked earlier about changes of government tend to come in waves. Do you think we're looking at a wave? We could be. And this is where science meets art. So you've got your numbers and then you've got to make sense of them. So what do we know with the numbers in front of us? Despite the pandemic, Labor's primary vote has held up for most of the last three years. Um, at the moment, they look in good shape. Um, Morrison's disapproval is outweighing his approval for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Albo's approval overrides his disapproval for the first time a couple of weeks ago. So you'd rather be, I think, in Labor's shoes than the government's. The problem is obviously that it's not a horse race. It has never been a race between two sides with equal um, resources winning elections is not a horse race. It is one side occupies the castle and the other side is trying to get up the wall and the one that occupies the castle can turn, you know, can pour burning metal on the people trying to get up the wall and use whatever analogy you like. But um, as we say, you need to win. It needs to be a wave for change. If you look seat by seat at what Labor needs to get there, it feels really hard. But then you look at the numbers and you go, well, maybe there is a wave coming. But you think in 96, Howard picked up seats no one saw coming. In 2007, Rudd swept through Queensland and Wade and, and Benelong. So I guess my point is that scientifically, seat by seat, there's a credible scenario that with the power of incumbency, the support of the Murdoch media and lots and lots of money to splash around, the Libs could sandbag the seats they need to hold on to and keep Queensland um, within a 7% swing, which saves most of their seats there and holds on. Um, the other story, which seems just as credible on the numbers, is the tide seriously starts going out on Morrison. And this is not 2019. He is not an unknown 
daggy dad in a baseball cap who loves his kids and the sharkies and cooking, you know, curries. This is a guy that's made a, a, a large number of mistakes which he has masterfully packaged in marketing speech that is so much more effective than any negative ad i don't hold a hose it's not a race and and his whole it seems like the whole party is turning on him at the moment so it's not 2019 i think there is a credible story the tide's totally gone out on um Morrison and Albo surfs the wave into shore in a way a bit like John Howard did in 96 where he wasn't a huge part of the conversation but it was just get these guys out. Now I'm not saying that's going to happen but I think on the numbers that's a credible scenario. So I end up saying most likely scenario at this stage I would say is a solid Labor win the wave. Second most likely scenario would be the Libs hold on in a narrow election. The truly historic result would be Labor to win narrowly because that hasn't happened. An opposition has not formed government in a narrow win since World War II. Again, doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but I think it's the least likely scenario. So the seat by seat thing, that's interesting because I think if the coalition does hold on, yes, they'll probably need a bit of luck in seats, but they will also need the national uh, result to not look like what the polls currently look like. Like they will need a swing back to them or the undecideds in your poll breaking, you know, 50, four, 50 to 45 to five, you know, probably they need all of that five and then maybe a tiny bit of the the people that are currently with Labor to go their way, which is, is plausible um, if unlikely. So, uh, yeah, I don't think, like some people I feel like sometimes you get on my blog, people are like, well, I just can't see the number of seats Labor needs to win I can't see which seats are going to flip. And I'm like, well, when a, when a wave is on, you know, like it doesn't really necessarily be about an individual seat here or there, right? If I have one concern with Labor, it's the lack of drumbeat. Like I think if, if it's a referendum on Morrison, he loses. But what gets Labor to shore? Um, we will see. And, of course, we could, we could see a much bigger crossbench as well because one of the things I look at with these numbers is I'm like, well, the coalition has no room to move with seats, right? Like they are basically at the minimum number they need to form government. Uh, but you could, you know, I think probably most of the independents who are running in Liberal seats could will lose, but maybe Wentworth, North Sydney, Goldstein, maybe another one surprises you. Have a look at that one over in, I think the one over in Perth is one to keep an eye on too. Curtin. Very strong candidate. You know, you could see a bunch of those flip and you have a much bigger crossbench. Um, but I think if that happens, Labor's probably gaining a bunch of other seats uh, that mean that they get to majority in their own right. Um, and it's just it's just an extra insult to injury on top for the outgoing government. Look, I totally agree with you on the wave. With the Teal Independents, it's hard to see them in seat-to-seat combat getting there. But if there is that wave on, I can see a couple of them surfing in at least. Um and then the question is, if it if they have balance where they go, and I think their default would be to find a way of keeping the government in power. So I don't think progressives particularly should be saying, oh, the Teals are going to be Labor seats. They're not. No, no, they won't be. They'll be a different, that there would be a different type of coalition government, but they... Um... They're not progressives. They're a kind of a breakaway from the Liberal Party, basically. Um, 
Okay, so one of the things we're going to be doing during the campaign is each week we're going to be picking a seat to talk about in a little bit of depth. Uh, Today, we're starting with Page, which is a national seat on the far north coast of New South Wales. Page covers Lismore, Casino, Grafton, and reaches down to the outer fringes of Coffs Harbour. Uh, Labor won Page in 2007 and 10, but the Nationals, Kevin Hogan, won the seat back in 2013, and he gained a big swing in 2019 and now holds it by 9.4%, which is the widest margin that seat's ever seen. But uh, meanwhile, Page has been home to some of the worst flooding recently, which has become like the the really prominent natural disaster that's kind of capped off this parliamentary term that started with the bushfires. Lismore in particular being hit really hard and... Scott Morrison has not been seen to handle it particularly well. Peter, do you think the recent events have changed the campaign in Page? I think Page fascinates me because it's ground zero on one of the proof points of government failure, both on climate and on service delivery. Um, And it's not just a story about the floods. It's a story about homelessness. It's one of the um, poorest per capita seats in the um, country. And... I think you're seeing the potential for a three or even a four-way fight in there. So if you look last time, the Greens had about 11%, Labor 26 and Kevin, who's a popular local member, I I should add, he's not a dud, um, was just under 50% of the primary. So that you'd say that looks like a pretty strong position. There's a Teal independent, Hannah Beth Luke, who's very strong um, and is um, linked into the community it, she's got a good backstory. She was um, one of the bar, she was known as the Bali Angel. She was in she was a, one of the victims of the Bali bombings and was in pictured taking bodies out. And she's got that really compelling backstory. And she's been a um, lecturer at Southern Cross Uni for the last decade, do, you know, working in all things climate resilience um, and particularly working with farmers in the region. So, not to say again that she's necessarily going to win it, but I think with Labor. If Labor was to sort of keep at that 25%, the independent vote get up closer to 20 and um, there is a path through there and a lot of people having really bad lived experience of um, the, you know, the reality is they're not going to be able to get this more back on track before the election, um, if not before the next election. Um so I'll just be really interested to watch the dynamics in that seat. Like obviously Morrison sprayed a lot of money, but also when he was up there spraying the money, the the images of you couldn't Kevin Hogan couldn't get away from him fast enough. Um, so I think the Morrison could be a drag on on that fight as well. So I just I, I I'm not saying it's at the top of any pendulum, but I think it's a really interesting seat just because it's got all those dynamics, right? It's got the dynamics of incumbency um, and a big swing last time. Um, a former Labor seat with a strong teal independence. So you sort of wrap that into a cocktail and God knows what happens. One of the big interesting questions with this election will be there is a series of seats that had particularly big swings in 2019 to the coalition, while other places were swinging the other way. And on the one hand, maybe that means there's more potential for those seats to swing back. You know, we know that there was a lot of people who voted Labor there quite recently. Uh, That may mean that that vote is not particularly solid on the other hand, though, you know, those could be long-term trends that those seats are trending away from Labor. I don't think Page is one of those ones that's trending away, but there's a lot of those seats that we're going to be watching, Central Queensland in particular, where, um, you know, recent history, pre-2019 history suggests that they should be competitive, but whether they are or not, 
I don't know. The last election was particularly, um, it, it was a weird election. And if you remember, there was also the influence of the Palmer money, which was just, um, which was just everywhere, which really turned into negative messaging on Shorten and Labor in the last couple of weeks. So what had looked like this third party campaign with a wall of noise suddenly was weaponized against Labor. With the messaging Palmer's running at the moment, I can't see him credibly doing that this time, but I'm, I might be ending, you know, I might be shown to be a deal. Um, so I think that's different. I think there was a lot more, thi- you know, I, I did a column this week where I ran the analogy that um, Morrison's, you know, employing sumo and um, we're, we're going judo. And um, when I say we, I'm saying labour. Um, Labor's doing judo and just trying not to take any point of contact for the opponent and just letting their weight do the damage themselves. So I don't think it's going to be about the Labor leader this time. I don't think they've got anything to go in on. If the focus is on Morrison, the problem he's got is, um, unlike David Sharma and other in, you know, Liberal members, Morrison can't distance himself from Morrison. Morrison every day will be in the spotlight being Morrison, and if that's the Lib's biggest weakness, they're in all sorts of trouble. So all of which is to say to your question, I suspect these aren't locked in lost Labor voters. I think some of them were convinced that Labor was going to tax them to death. Um, you know, there was a cohort that was voting against franking credits. There was a cohort that were voting against negative gearing and those sorts of things. And then there was just so much noise. Um, so I don't think it, look, if the Libs, if the Libs are returned with a similar vote after everything that's happened over the last couple of years, yes, then I think your thesis will hold, but I'm not sure we're there yet. No, no, I don't think so either. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Peter, for joining me. Thanks, mate. The Tally Room Guide to the Australian Federal Election is now free for all to read. Check it out at tallyroom.com.au slash oz2022. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBrow for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 